And we're live. Hello and welcome back to another I Could Eat a Peach for Hours episode of the First Time Watchers podcast. Because we like to watch. My name is Tim Costa. I'm Romano De Silva. This is Walter Vinci. And what we like to do on the FTW podcast is find a movie that none of us have seen, watch it together, and then discuss. These movies could be new, they could be old, or something that's on all of our lists of shame. Stay tuned to the very end of this episode. Each of us make a very special movie recommendation. If you'd like to send feedback, remember to email us at firsttimewatchers at gmail.com. Speaking of feedback... Please? Holy shit. I, well, first off, I, no, I actually want to thank the individual on Twitter who asked how people can listen to our first episodes... Uh, and I asked, <laughs> we have the same question. I asked, why in the name of the Lord would anyone want to go that far back? Uh, if anyone really does feel masochistic and is hell bent on hearing really shitty audio quality and our really shitty content, uh, you could actually visit archive.org/slash/details/slash at first time watchers. Um, I, I found I found it, guys, and. Um, they're all I can there. Imagine what that sounds like compared to now. I can only imagine so us I, around that the computer with a little tiny stick mic. I began my old laptop. I began listening to episode three, which was our best of 2011 uh, top ten guys, um, and I couldn't get more than ten minutes in. It was it was awful. It was awful. Oh really? It was terrible. Um, I've, I've told you in, in the past, Tim. I, I think I've told Wally. Like I've gone. I go back every once in a while just out of. You know, curiosity. You know, to some sort of like morbid uh, amusement <laughs> from like our early days. And yeah, I mean, I I can't go. I think too long either. Like I'll listen to them, and then I'm just like, oh, it's almost like um, kind of like going back and looking at your yearbook photo or something. You're just like, oh my god, I used to look like that, <laughs> or you know, something like that. Like it's the same exact feeling I get listening to our. Our early episodes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, we started hosting on a n- new site like around episode 85, 86 or something like that. So everything before then is on that archive.org slash details slash at first time watchers, spelling out all the first time watchers. Um, and and it was um, it was interesting to go back, just to even see the titles that we, we had uh, discussed. You know, I was like, wow, I, it, I'd forgotten a lot about a lot. Uh, of those movies and um it was it was a trip down memory lane and uh i mean we are approaching six years of doing this guys come february so it's uh yeah anyways uh secondly boy oh boy did we have tons of feedback on a question that i posed on twitter over the weekend i the the question was what is the dumbest movie that you love and will defend to the death Guys, the notifications, holy shit, were out of control. Oh, I, I was I was cracking up watching your watching your reaction to all of the uh, the tweets and I kind of wish I had held off a little while longer before I tweeted out my answer just so I could have said Starship Troopers. <laughs> you just just to watch you go, "No!" <laughs> we or, had or whatever you would whatever you would have fired back with would have been gold. Yeah, we had over 2,500 replies. So many. That uh, eventually, I just had to mute the conversation because, like I said, the notifications were just out of control. They were insane, and we're we're still getting replies. We're still getting replies uh, five, six days later. Yes, uh, so, love it. And um, yeah, so thank you, I guess, to all of those uh, that replied. It, it, I think most of the people were serious. I don't know. Some people, you know, like I said, like you said, Wally, they were eventually. Some people were replying with movies like Starship Troopers and Clueless and Clue and 
the burbs and i was like look these are immediately disqualified from uh, as reasonable answers because they're not dumb movies and uh but uh we did have some great replies if you for some reason didn't see this over twitter over the past uh half week then i guess you can send us another tweet or whatever i don't know I, uh, um does Hermano have a uh, did Hermano answer this one? Did, uh, the movie he'll defend to the death. Yes, I did. Uh, and on on a small a small much smaller scale than what Tim probably had to deal with, I got a lot of love for like my answer. And I, uh, an, I didn't initially, see your answer. Oh, initially I said um, over the top, and um, you know I got a bunch of likes and stuff. And apparently like people were on board. Like you know, over the top is a dumb movie, but you'll defend it. You know, basically, it was you know the whole question and all that, and then like later on, because it got so much love, I I replied again to Tim, and I'm like, you know, it really warmed my heart to see like so many like closeted over the top fans come out <laughs> and, and support my my response, and then like I was at round one. Uh, you guys know for people that don't know what round one is, it's kind of like a Dave and Buster's basically. Yeah, I, I was there again. I was there with my kids. You know, they have like this like indoor um like playground basically and we were there we go there every once in a while and i was there and my phone just kept buzzing like crazy and i'm like wow what the heck's going on and i check and like that reply got way more like responses like you know the idea that um you know i i was happy to see all the love pouring out for over the top and like it got like 120 something likes a bunch of people responded some dude from like some news anchor from like idaho <laughs> responded to it and he was all like <laughs> He's all like, over the top is a cinematic masterpiece. And he got a bunch of love for his reply. And I'm like, wow. Like, I, Tim, like, seriously tapped into some, like, Look, I, untapped I have mind. No, <laughs> Twitter is, is such a weird animal to me because, you know, it's not the first time I've posed a question like this to get some interaction. And sure, I've gotten, like, dozens of replies to other questions before. But I don't know what it is about this question that, that touched... Uh, a certain spot for so many people and was it, 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 i i don't like I, like i said twitter is the weirdest animal and and you could put out i could put out what is i think the 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 smartest or most interesting question and i'll never get a reply but this one it's it's not it's well, it's this a, one's really relatable though everyone yeah. has like a movie you know that they they love but they know that you know is you know when they when they're really truthful about it, it's not a great film, but something about it you you still enjoy or adore you know, about that film. You know that's that's a good point, and I think it's a different way of phrasing what's a guilty pleasure of yours. You know, yeah, exactly. And, and you that question has been posed a lot, and I don't th I think there's a lot of um, th there's a lot of feedback. You know, a lot of uh, a pushback when you use the term guilty pleasure. You know, and then people want to say, oh, how do you define a guilty pleasure and all that kind of stuff. So. So I it maybe maybe the the phrasing of the question was was the right way to do it too. Yeah, I mean I don't believe in the term guilty pleasure. It's you like what you like, That's and fair. you'll never you'll, you won't hear me say like guilty pleasure unless I'm using it in a context of like talking with someone in a conversation. But it's on a, it's I will I, I will always unabashedly say my love for Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. I love that movie. I will watch that movie time and time again. I, I would never and say that's a dumb movie though. You know that's not the. Uh, I wouldn't put classify that as a dumb movie. You know, like my answer is G.I. Joe: The Rise of Cobra. That's a dumb effing movie, uh, but I think it's tons of fun. Uh, so, uh, and exact, it sets out exactly to uh, what it what it wants to do. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it's just uh, mine is Big Trouble because I think it's it's just a brainless comedy, but I still find it absolutely hilarious every time I watch it with a. Uh, 
the the whole and every time I go to the airport, I still bring up that joke. Whenever I pull into the airport, if I'm going somewhere, yeah, I'll turn to you know to Kate and be like, oh, uh, wait, we're coming to an airport, so we're technically leaving, but we're arriving somewhere. Which gate do I drive up to? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, once again, thank you to everyone who replied. Uh, and uh, lastly. I want to thank Michael and Dave from the Grand Gesture Podcast for having me on to talk about the film about Schmidt. Uh, and you can look for it to be released around Christmas time, I think is when they said that they're going to put it out. Uh, those familiar, not familiar with the Grand Gesture Podcast, it's relatively new. They only have, I think it's about seven episodes out so far. It is Dave from Pop Culture Case Study and Michael from War Machine Warhorse. Oh, wow. Uh, they put out a new podcast together. Uh, that, as they described, um, a podcast where Coastal Elite Dave and Country Bumpkin Michael apply everything they've learned from movies to their love lives. So, like, their first episode was on Knocked Up, and they went to Mud and Silver Linings Playbook, Crazy Stupid Love, Night and Day, Wally. <laughs> yeah! Um, the Age of Adeline and uh, Wonder Woman. So, uh, yeah, it, it was, to me, it was an odd pick for uh, the theme of their program i guess and uh but you once it comes out uh you can hear my thoughts on about schmidt funnily enough we brought that up uh on our last episode during um one of our segments thank you again so uh, uh check out uh grand gesture podcast uh it's it's uh, it's a lot of fun actually all right finally uh this week we are finishing october spooky movie month by discussing the 1960 french horror film eyes without a face but before we get into that it is time for yay or nay This is the part of the show where we discuss what we have seen recently on our own. I will go first. Okay, guys, uh, several things I could talk about. I mean, I could talk about Dead Ringers from 1988, directed by David Cronenberg and starring Jeremy Irons. Uh, but it's not that great of a David Cronenberg film. It's kind of boring. It's a bit pretentious. And I was rather meh to nay on it. Or I could talk about uh, two films from this year. Uh, it Stains the Sands Red. Uh, which is a very low-budget film that I think does the best out of what it offers and if uh, its budget. Um, uh, and it's fine. It's not great, but it's mildly entertaining. Uh, and uh, I give the filmmakers and the actress uh, credit for dealing what they had to do. Uh, or I could talk about Band-Aid, uh, a film that... I Actually, I know that, uh, Hermano, you saw the trailer uh, a couple months ago. And yep. we're mildly interested. Uh, stars, written, starring, and directed by Zoe Lister Jones, uh, is uh, where she is one half of a couple that are dealing that is dealing with kind of marital crisis and uh, emotional uh, ups and downs, and they deal with their arguments via song. Uh, and it is a, a rather well done, entertaining movie. Uh, but I'm not here to talk about those guys. I'm here to talk about the greatest movie of all time. Oh, here we go. I, I'm I, waiting for this. I'm, I'm here to talk about the, the greatest movie of the year, uh, the greatest movie you'll ever see, the, the movie that will fuck your eyeballs uh, senseless, uh, starring none other than Gerard Butler, and that is Geostorm, the greatest all right, movie. let me mute you and then take off my headphones for The greatest time. movie of all time. Now, uh, anybody who's listening to this and follows uh, uh, us on Twitter uh, will probably have been inundated uh, with uh, tweets uh, proclaiming this movie uh, the greatest movie of all time since I saw it on Saturday. Look, guys, it, it, this, this is exactly the type of movie you would ever expect from a movie called Geostorm starring Gerard Butler. 
it, it look first it, it starts and ends with the 13 year old girl who is his daughter uh doing a voiceover about how great her father is and hope for humanity I and speaking of the, the the beginning postulates that humanity comes together due to gl- uh, global climate change to solve the problem, but then forgets what the fuck they even came together for and fights over who controls the ISS once uh, the contract runs out, which is amazing. Um, when it comes to video conferencing between people uh, like Gerard Butler on the space station and anybody he's interacting with on the ground. It's really amazing because you see him like looking at this big wall of a computer screen, like this, this holographic computer screen. And you know, the people he's talking to that are on this holographic computer screen, but whenever the other side is talking and it cuts to them, it's just like them looking at the, the camera. There's never anything. You don't see what they're looking at, which I was so found so odd, but completely amazing. Uh, Butler loves his daughter so much and promises her in the in the beginning that he will make it back from space, but never calls her from ISS or says to his brother to say goodbye for him when he realizes he's going to sacrifice himself at the end of the movie. He doesn't make one iota of trying to contact her at the end of the movie, which is amazing. Uh, he he befriends uh, a German scientist, uh, a female German scientist, uh, who at the end of the movie leaves the ISS uh, you know, in order for him to be the last one on board to save the day and sacrifice himself, it, during the the, sh- the the shit that's going down at the end of this movie, he uh, is like at a doorway and he he's trying to punch the code, and and he he can't figure out what the code is. And all of a sudden, you hear her voice and says, "I can help." And he turns around and she's there out of nowhere. There's no explanation for her to be there. It's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, Ed Harris is eventually. Uh, turns uh, to be the bad guy in this movie and he monologues and he, while he takes a rocket launcher out of the trunk of a car to explode the car that the president is riding in, which is amazing. It's the, it's the best scene of the year. Uh, the evil henchman who works for Ed Harris has a scar down the side of his face because why not, right? Because he's evil and he scowls menacingly all the time. This, this movie is as if 2012 and San Andreas married National Treasure and had a kid. It It's, it's, it's like just every other Emmerich films. There, there is a dog in peril, and and but of course, guess what? The dog makes it, of course, because of course. I uh, my one of my favorite parts is that there's a Geostorm status bar slash countdown, ninety minutes until Geostorm. I'm like, what? This is awesome. This is the best thing you could ever have. If I had a vagina, my chair would have been soaked at, at the end of this this movie. Um, it's it's the the best thing. It's it's amazing. Wally, you would have a blast. You would like this movie, yeah. I, I do want to see it. I just gotta. It's not on. My, it's not high. Exactly a high priority for me to go out and. I understand. And go see. I'll probably. I'll probably. There's a uh, the uh, east. Uh, yeah. East. Yeah. The budget. Stand. The budget. When, when it goes there, I'll go. The one dollars anyway. Yeah. That's that's perfect. Yeah. Um, there were about a dozen other people in the theater with me on a Saturday afternoon, and every single one of them applauded at the end of the movie. I was squealing in my seat. I was literally writhing in my seat halfway through this movie. I'm like, this is the greatest movie of all time this is so awesome i i i cannot explain to you how awesomely trashy amazing this movie is it it is it it, it's i i expected uh schlock going into it i mean directed by dean devlin who has been a producer with 
with um, Roland Emmerich for years. For years. This is his directorial debut. You know, I, this movie is an hour and 49 minutes, and I just imagine if Roland Emmerich did this movie, it would have been two and a half hours. It would have been literally the best disaster movie of all time. Uh, but uh, it, it's it's just it's, it's so great. There, there are scenes that make zero sense. There's tons of... Uh, staring at computer screens and and trying to figure out what's going on and then just abandoning uh those people and those scenes but it, it's just has that perfect tone of of uh just it, the cheese you know it's it like i said if if you like a national treasure movie and you want to mix that with with a roland Emmerich disaster movie it's it's the perfect combination it's it's stupendously amazing it, it's i, I I mean, there's zero uh, chance of this not being my number one film of the year. Hermano. Okay, sorry, I just unmuted you. <laughs> um, um, so I watched two things, and both things that I watched, I gave nines out of ten wow. on IMDb. So high on my radar. Uh, first was I finished up Mindhunter, the Netflix series. All right, don't spoil this for me. I'm almost three-quarters of the way through it right now. Okay, I will not spoil it at all. Um, I'll just read the... Um, Synopsis on IMDb. In the late 1970s, two FBI agents expand criminal science by delving into the psychology of murder and getting uneasily close to all two real monsters. So starring Jonathan Goff, Holt McCollany, and Hannah Gross. Um, a lot of different directors for each episode, but most prominently uh, David Fincher, I think, directed at least two, maybe three. I think the first couple of episodes are him. Okay, I f- believe he does maybe the last two, if not the last two, at least the last one. So maybe he did like three. But um, I it was my obsession <laughs> for the six days it took me to watch the entire series. Um, so basically, I like I've said many times in the past, I've been huge into true crime for a lot of years now, starting with like things like forensic files and you know other things. But um, yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. I loved the kind of like the early days of um, these two agents, how they come together to kind of start to try to um, understand the pattern of behavior that's driving all these new types of uh, crimes that they're, you know, they haven't really seen before. Guys like they mentioned um, specifically like Charles Manson, the um, Son of Sam killer, uh, those guys like they they couldn't envision those guys they couldn't see them coming and uh how to approach catching them so they start to develop like like i said like um a profile for these type of killers and you know eventually they come up with the term serial killer but um they go and they basically visit um other uh serial killers that were caught or uh i mean at least to them they start to establish these rules like anyone that's killed more than three people things like that and it's it's really well done to just kind of see like the early interviews with these people, um, kind of developing a way of speaking to them and kind of trying as best they can to understand how their minds work. Uh, and then, you know, just taking all that research and developing kind of like a plan for um, how to catch the, or oh, hopefully the, to catch these guys in the future before, you know, they get you know, as far down as they do in, in, you know, the amount of people they kill and stuff like that. So it's really well done, like all the um, exploration of like how it affects um, the agents as they're doing the interviews and kind of like the methods they have to do uh, to 
elicit responses and, and things like that, I think are all pretty compelling. Um, I could have done, I guess, with there, there are certain things I would probably have cut out of the show. There's one really contrived thing towards the end that I, I, I just was scratching my head at. Like, it was maybe the only reason I gave it a 9 out of 10 because it's so contrived, so dumb, so just forced in there to push the plot along that it was glaringly obvious that they had no other way to reconcile how to move this this whole thing along. So aside from that, I absolutely love the show and I would absolutely recommend it to anyone that even has a, a passing curiosity on uh, you know the subject matter. So high yay for Mindhunter. All right, and I got a th- question for you. Okay. All right, so about halfway through, I'm about three quarters of the way through, about halfway through, I figured out who the interlude is at the very beginning. Yep. Do they ever like, do, does that resolve at some place? I don't want to give anything away. Um, not really, but if you're like me and you've, you know, listened to a lot of podcasts or are familiar with, and they give you a lot of clues. So it's, it's, it's I think it's pr- um, primarily there for people that obviously, like I, I basically knew almost every single guy they interview. Like I at least heard of a, a multiple podcasts or or seen a documentary on yeah. these people. So almost immediately I I knew who these they were before they almost before they just the mention of the name. I had already yeah. knew basically their entire story. So that one is a little bit more subtle, or not really subtle is not the right word, but like they're not obvious with who it is. But I think if you you probably already know who it is, Wally. And well, uh, once 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 they saw once I saw the ADT thing. I was like, yeah, I know who that is. And then the following one, you see him pl- fiddling with something. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah, that's that's who that is. Yeah, right. they basically lay out this entire per- like person's M.O. and how they operated and kind of what they were known for. So it's, it's very easy to pick up on for people. But they don't really resolve it, but maybe leave it uh, hanging to maybe follow up on in the next season. All right. I don't think that's too much uh, of a spoiler. But um, play- I would say the dude who plays Kemper even sounds like him. Yeah. If you listen to oh any of the, the uh, recordings of like that, that you can find online of yep. this dude, like he sounds just like him. Yeah, it's I thought weird. all the guys they interviewed were were really spot on. Um I didn't listen to like all of those. I didn't know what they sounded like or what their mannerisms were, but that one I had and I knew that person specifically because of how horrible his crimes were. I mean, he stands out amongst people because, you know, it's very graphic and maybe maybe the one of the sickest um like people I've ever heard of that committed crimes and what they did. Like it, he's always one of the guys I think of it. That's at the top of my list. I'm like, this guy was fucked up. Um, but yeah, like all those guys in their depictions of those, those people were, were really good. were really well done. By the way, uh, David Fincher directed the first two and the last two episodes. Okay. So four in total. Cool. And then lastly, I watched a film from this year. I think both you guys had a interest in this film. It's called Brawl in Cell Block 99. Oh, damn. I do. I wanted to see this. I've heard Tim, good things. Tim, you, you've heard of this, right? I have, and I'm very interested in seeing it. Okay. Uh, starring, uh, well, I, I'll read the synopsis. A former boxer turned drug runner lands in a prison battleground after a deal gets deadly. Directed by S. Craig Zaylor, who directed Bone Tomahawk. And starring Vince Vaughn, Jennifer Carpenter, and Don Johnson. Um, I had a huge interest in this. I was a fan of, uh, bone Tomahawk overall. That one scene in it still kind of haunts me. (laughs) Um, but this, um, this film, I pretty darn close to saying I loved, um, it's a bit long at two hours and 12 minutes long though. 
I wouldn't necessarily say it feels long. I just feel like it's a slow burn. Like it, the first half an hour is all set up. Like you're introduced to the Vince Vaughn character. He's kind of uh, fallen on hard times, turns to becoming a drug runner to support um, his wife, Jennifer Carpenter. And, and, you know, they want to, you know, they've been wanting to start a family. So this kind of threw a, a monkey wrench in those plans. So he turns to drug running. He's a big imposing figure, I think, in real life. Vince Vaughn is like six foot four, six foot five or something like that. Looks like he put on some pounds for this film. So he's he's completely selling the imposing um, figure that he's portraying in this film. I think it's one of his best performances I've ever seen from Vince Vaughn by far. Um, Non-comedy stuff specifically, too. Um, <clears throat> so basically, he gets involved in that. Obviously, things go wrong. He gets into prison and then... <clears throat> because things went wrong, he needs he owes a debt, and um, he basically is tasked to uh, take someone out. Um, and I won't go any further than that. But man, this film—if you love like '70s slash '80s kind of um, grindhouse, like kind of almost low-budget, gritty films, like especially prison films or like gang-related films. This is going to be right up your alley, and it definitely was for me. Like, it's so well done on that level. It's got like this kind of like, um, uh, like a funk. Uh, it doesn't really have a score. Very minimal score in this film, but it most of the music is like like funk inspired or like soul, uh, maybe more accurately. And it just really gives you that, puts you in that that space of like, you know, that, that type of film, like seventies, almost, almost exploitative, except without being exploitative, um, with like, you know, racially, but more like, um, with like the violence it's depicting and man, does it depict some pretty creative violence all done practically, which you'll, you guys are going to get a huge kick out of. I think you guys are usually on my wavelength when it comes to that stuff. So it's really, really well done. I think you guys are really going to get a, a kick out of it and um, high yay for Brawl and Cell Block 99. Yeah, you saw it because you rented it? Um, I have my connections. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it is available to, to rent online right now. And uh, oh, okay. I think it comes out on DVD at the end of December. So uh, hopefully I'll be able to catch it before the end of the year uh, or our end of the year wrap up. Uh, Wally. All right. I'm going to see two things this week. Uh, the first had an interesting title, and I found it on YouTube. It's called Gordon Ramsay on Cocaine. Have you guys come across this at all? No. So no, but I, I, Yeah, go ahead. Gordon Ramsay did a documentary on the uh, cocaine problem that Britain has. Apparently, it's like the number one drug that's coming in. Kind of, It's almost like it seems to be like what cocaine is over in, in the UK is kind of what heroin is like here in the Northeast at the moment. They like they bring in like 30 tons of the stuff a year and it's 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 pretty much everywhere uh he does a test like a, a cocaine wipe test on all of his restaurants and they all come back positive like in the staff rooms and like in the uh the public bathrooms as well and it's almost like a vice type documentary where he's going around with the police and other authorities to see how this this whole how you know how these guys are you know how these guys do it and um you know, interviews them and, and is listening to like their stories. Uh, it, really interesting, I think. Uh, th but the thing that always tickled me the most is whenever like he's with the police, he pulls over somebody, hears somebody like, "Hey, are you going to Ramsey?" And he's like, "Yeah." And they're like, "Oh, wow, that's so cool!" And the guy gets arrested. He's like, "Oh, so we had to meet like this." 
um, it's on YouTube, and you can find it if you if you search it out. It's uh, really interesting, actually. I, I it's about forty five minutes long, and I, I as a documentary, I think it's it's you know it's it, it gets the job done. It gives you information, and um, from an unexpected source, I never thought Gordon Ramsay would be like a documentarian, but apparently his head chef and like his best friend died uh, from a bad batch. So that's like that was like his uh, his motivation for putting this documentary together. So I would say that is a yay. And then I saw one other movie, and it's only five minutes long. It's a short. Uh, it is written and directed by Mel Rainsberger, who is a, a friend of mine. Uh, she did this in 2014. Uh, it's called Won't You Come Home, Bones Bailey. And it is a short zombie film shot in Pawtucket, not far from uh, where her studio used to be. In fact, I think some of it is shot in her old uh, former studio. Uh, it takes place in the 1920s in the Prohibition era. There is a raid on a, an underground jazz bar. People are drinking. And during the, the chaos, a, a musician falls and hits his head on the ground and dies. He comes back as a zombie. But rather than craving human flesh, he's looking for his trumpet. Hmm. And so the the whole movie, it's, 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 play, it's got this like... Um, like 1920s like band that's playing like, and they do the it's basically like a jo- one long music video so there's all these verses as the movie's going along uh to the to, to a tune similar to won't you come home uh uh what's what's the actual song uh won't you come home bill bailey yes um so it's, it's like that but there's like a live band you know, an actual band playing it and uh the guy who plays uh bailey is i've met him in real life he's actually like almost like seven feet tall this guy's huge but it's a really clever twist on the whole zombie thing. You never see him like eat anybody, but he's the uh, one of the characters has his trumpet, and he's he's quote unquote chasing her because he's just trying to get his trumpet back, and that's kind of integral to how the movie ends. Uh, you can find it on Amazon Prime. I was just about to say, uh, yeah, it's, it's free on yeah, Prime. It's free on Prime. Yeah, it's worth it's five minutes long. It's worth a watch. Um, it's you know made here in Rhode Island, local filmmakers, and I'm always gonna. Uh, advocate for them if their stuff is good, and, I, and Mel does some really clever stuff, even when she's just you know screwing around with the camera. Uh, so I would say this is a yay all the way. Give it a watch. It's it's free. It's not a long investment, and it's it's something different. It's it's a, a different kind of Halloween thing. So uh, give it a watch. Won't you come home, Bill Bailey? I say, won't you come home? Oh, you've been away. Oh, honey, you've been away too long. I'll do that cooking, honey. Yes, sir. What are you reading there, Tim? Uh, one of those horror indie magazines. I didn't know you were into those. Oh, I'm not. It's actually addressed to our co-host. I didn't think Wally was that much of a horror guy. I didn't th- think so either, but this isn't the only one we've been getting. Yeah, notice. We get a magazine delivery every three days. Hey, guys. Are you ready to start the... Ooh, it's magazine delivery. How many subscriptions do you have, Wally? Oh, probably about, like, 30 at this point. 30? Yeah, speaking of... Hey, you know what show you should always uh, you should be subscribing to? The In Session Film Podcast. That's right, Tim. The In Session Film Podcast is J.D. and Brendan. Mm, I'd love to see a centerfold of Brendan. Was that Tim? Uh, no, nothing, nothing. 
Each week, the In Session Film Podcast chooses a movie to review. Then creates a top three list based on what they just saw. This week, the In Session Film Podcast is reviewing the Meyerowitz stories. And a top three list of dysfunctional families. You can find their show on iTunes by searching for, you guessed it, the In Session Film Podcast. Or on the web at InSessionFilm.com. So if you're in the mood for more great movie reviews and discussion, then check out the In Session Film Podcast on iTunes. Or on the web at InSessionFilm.com. Uh, so how are you paying for all these subscriptions, Wally? I'm selling teeth. Wait, what? But you're not missing any teeth. Oh, they don't have to be your own teeth. Won't you come home, Bill Bailey? I say, won't you come home? I say, you better walk away too long. And as Miss Pearl Bailey might say, Bill, honey, daddy, you better bring it on home, because, honey, I'm just so tired of waiting on you. Honey, these shoes, I, I'm telling you, buddy, make it wait no longer. Okay, now it is time for Trailer Hitches. This is a segment where we mention a trailer that gets us on board for an upcoming movie or makes us want to bitch. I'll go first. Uh, there was a teaser that was just released a day or two ago. Uh, it's not even a minute long, actually, and it really doesn't give much of a plot. Uh, and the trailer, but the synopsis on IMDb is competitive ice skater Tanya Harding rises amongst the ranks at, at the U.S. Figure Skating Championships, but her future in the activity is thrown into doubt when her ex-husband intervenes. America. They want someone to love. But they want someone to hate. And the haters always say, Tanya, tell the truth. There's no such thing as truth. I mean, it's bullshit. This is I, Tanya, uh, directed by Craig Gillespie. Uh, he is known for The Finest Hours and Fright Night Remake, um, Lars and the Real Girl. So, I mean, not much to to his background, but uh, Tanya Harding is played by Margot Robbie. And uh, I know a lot has been said of Margot Robbie's uh, physical transformation in this movie. Uh, you know, uh, according to some... Uh, reports from uh, film festivals that it's played at already. Uh, it's coming out in the 8th of December, and it, it, I mean, from what I saw in the trailer, the way it's cut, it's it's pretty interesting. It's just a voiceover, really. And um, I, I like some of the just basic sh you know cuts you see. Uh, it it kind of gives it a like a almost like a, a comedic type of tone to it. Like it's going to be a, a dark comedy or something like that. Um, I mean, it on IMDb, it does say biography, drama, sport. So uh, obviously, you know, it's it's part of her career leading up to probably the events that we're familiar with, uh, with Nancy Kerrigan. So um, and uh, Nancy Kerrigan is played by Caitlin Gar Carver, who I've never heard of before. Um, but 
Uh, no, I mean, look, I, 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 there's good word of mouth about this movie, and uh, if they follow through with the what the tone of the teaser makes it come across as, I, I mean, it, it looks like it would be a, an interesting watch, you know. Uh, so uh, consider me hitched to I, Tanya. Hermano. The trailer I watched was for a film called 24 Hours to Live, uh, directed by Brian... <laughs> Smurz, S M R Z, Smurz. I uh, hope I'm absolutely pronouncing that correctly. Um, starring Rutger Hauer and Ethan Hawke. Synopsis An assassin seeks redemption after being given a second chance at life. Man, that is really underplaying what I saw in the trailer. How long do I have? You have less than 24 hours to live. Mr. Conrad, finish one last job, and you'll live to see tomorrow. You have no idea what you've done. I'm going to come at you with everything I've got. Send a strike team to find and kill. I'm going to have to get creative. These guys don't play nice. Neither do I. He's one hell of a weapon. With nothing to lose. He took my wife. He took my son. So you can either walk away. Or I'm gonna walk away over your dead body. Send somebody back for the bodies. Basically, the trailer opens up with uh, supposedly um, Ethan Hawke is brought back to life after after being betrayed by his unit. It looks like maybe some sort of military, maybe CIA type outfit. And um, as he's brought back to life, he realize, he remembers that he was betrayed. And, of course, he wants to get revenge. Um, for some reason, I have no idea. He, Ethan Hawke either has a robot arm or, for unknown reason, he had a countdown clock implanted into his I, forearm. I am already so on board with this fucking movie guy. <laughs> um, you mentioned, uh, Tim, earlier... Um, Watching Geostorm, it was like a bunch of other movies got together and had Geostorm for a baby. Yeah. This one looks like John Wick and Crank got together Look, and adopted so, it, a baby. It's so funny you say that because this Brian, <laughs> this Brian Smurz guy, he has 77 credits of either stunt coordinator or stunt actor. Uh, and 26, I think 26 of those movies, he has uh, a credit as second unit director or assistant director. So this looks like it's kind of the same uh, pedigree as the first John Wick, you know? Yeah, and, and, you know, the trailer lets you know that immediately. Like it says from the producers of John Wick, it has the same kind of graphic design work as they used for, um, um, shit, Atomic Blonde. Like kind of like that, like '80s aesthetic neon uh, color scheme to the, all the text that you know overlays over the trailer. Though it doesn't have the same feel or vibe with you know the score or anything like that that Atomic Blonde did. Just kind of the same look overall. And um, 
yeah, you know, you get the same, you know, you get a generic bad guy with his back to the, you know, facing the camera. And he's like, hey, you know, if you do this one last job for me, I'll I'll let you live or, you you know, me be able to breathe another day. And of course, like, you know, the whole trailer is just like guns, explosions, very reminiscent of what you get with John Wick, except Ethan Hawke this time. So I know that there's a lot of Ethan Hawke fans out there. Tim, you're one. Mm. Uh, Julie Delpy is probably not in this, <laughs> so it won't be a reuniting of that but um yeah i don't know it looks fun i don't know again i wouldn't run out to see this in the theater apparently it comes out tomorrow i had not seen a single ad for this so i think it's going to be under the radar it might not be playing in a lot of theaters but you know if it sounds interesting you might want to check out 24 hours to live tomorrow wally all right so i've been waiting to talk about this since i saw the trailer uh coming out it says march 2018 pacific rim uprising Jake Pentecost, son of Stacker Pentecost, returns with Mako Mori to lead a new generation of Jagger pilots, including rival Steve, uh, including rival Lambert and 15-year-old hacker Amara against a new kaiju threat. So at first, I was really excited and was like, oh, all the things I like, big robots and fighting monsters. But then as like I rewatched the trailer again later, I went, no, I don't think I got a bad feeling about this. I do. It's directed by Stephen S. DeKnight, whose pedigree has three episodes of the Angel TV series, two episodes of Smallville, one episode of Dollhouse, one episode of Daredevil. This is his first feature film. So I mean, what was... what did Guillermo <laughs> del Toro do before the first Pacific Rim? Come on, <laughs> what a game! <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> not quite the I, not quite the same, and written by. <laughs> T.S. Nolan, who has got the Maze Runner, some Phoenix Forgotten, which I've never heard of, three Maze Runners, and then apparently after this, he's also the writer for Godzilla vs. Kong, but it says writer's room, so <laughs> there's that. So he's in the corner fetching coffee for them. <laughs> yeah, a double double warning for me, and then like on like at first I was like really excited to see like all the you know the robots, but then I saw like what they added for like other robots. Like, there's one that uses a meteor hammer, and I'm like, I don't, that doesn't seem like a, a weapon I'd want a robot to have. You're like, all the other, ro- like, the robots prior have, like, you know, like, you get the blaster in Gypsy Danger. Um, the, I think the Russian robot has, like, chainsaw hands. Or was that the, the might have been the Chinese one. But then you get this, like, I, I don't know, the, the, the tra- seeing the trailer on the large screen also didn't really wow me all that much it's funny you say that it's funny you say that because i saw the trailer first on my phone and then the second time i saw it was on the big screen i was like i was more impressed with it on my phone than i was on the big screen i was like that's kind of weird that is weird and so i'm a little nervous at this point like at first i was really excited and i'm still hitching because i'm gonna go see it no matter what And, and i hope that you know john boyega you know pulls a rabbit out of his hat you know what i mean like I think he's, I think he's great, and I just hope. And most of the other cast is back. Like they brought back, uh, you know, Charlie Day and uh, what the hell? Is his Rinko name? Kikuchi. Um, uh, yeah, Burn Gor- uh, Burn Gorman. Yep. So, like some of the you know characters that I've already seen that I and I liked. I'm like, okay, this is cool, but there's something about like watching it again after like seeing it on the big screen that has me hesitant. But it's it's a it's a hesitant hitch. Because I'm I'm a little little nervous about what I'm walking into here, um, and the other thing too is like when you see the trailer, like oh it's kaiju's, but 
like the new threat is I guess they can regenerate. Is that accurate? I don't know, but I'll I'll still be going to see it. So it, it's a tentative hit for Pacific Rim Uprising. David Hart, host of Pop Culture Case Study, a podcast that analyzes film from a psychological angle. On Thursdays, we take a look at an older movie, pick a theme, and then apply the research that has been in the psychological field to it. Then on Monday, we tie all of that to a new release. Lastly, there's a section of the show called Fangirl Fixation, dedicated to my wife Britt's ongoing film education. We discuss older films that she's recently seen, as well as the upcoming releases for that week. You can find Pop Culture Case Study on your podcast player of choice, and I will be there, as always, diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Why haven't you seen To Kill a Mockingbird? I was too busy re-watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe films again. Why haven't you seen Mad Max? Do you know how hard it is to track down a copy of The Return of Captain Invincible? Why haven't you seen The Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Did you know that Road to Perdition was originally a comic book? This is Bubba Wheat from Flights, Tights, and Movie Nights, and on each episode of FilmWise, my guest introduces me to a film that they're passionate about and I've never seen before, and in return, I introduce them to a comic book or superhero film that they're curious about. Find it every other week at FilmWise.com, iTunes, or Stitcher. Okay, let's talk about Eyes Without a Face. The plot. A surgeon causes an accident which leaves his daughter disfigured and goes to extremes to give her a new face. The director, okay, France, I'm really sorry, uh, Georges Franjou. The actors, yep. Pierre Brasseur, uh, Alidi, Valli, uh, Juliette, my nail. Oh, God, I'm really sorry. Uh, Hermano. Um, Hi. You, uh, you were one, as is uh, Spooky Movie Month, to recommend this film. Uh, any reason you want you want to get into that? So why and uh, what did you think? Well, the why is I, I think I said it with um, 
the other film we reviewed, which now I can't even remember. <laughs> three, three people, three people listen to our episodes, and uh, and we can't guarantee them to remember. Yeah, so yeah, I can't remember either. But I just went looking for '60s horror films. I just I felt like there was a blind spot for me. I had not seen a lot specific, well, specific especially foreign films, uh, foreign horror films. I I. Mostly, you know, as a you know youth, seen more of like you know the American fair and stuff like that. So, wanted to kind of like look outside the box a bit and see what else was out there. I'd seen um, this one and the other one is highly rated um, and kind of must sees. And I decided, you know what, just take a chance. You know, who knows? These could be great, or you know, they'll just you know be a sign of their time. So whatever, but. I also didn't know that both were Criterion films when I recommended them. The site that I went on to, to to find them didn't reference that at all. So that was just kind of an added bonus. But uh, I, I looked at the premise. I looked at the synopsis. I was on board for this. It kind of reminded me a little bit of when I read the synopsis, at, me, at least initially, um, the uh, Pedro Almodovar film, The Skin I Live In, kind of sounded similar to that. I thought maybe this could have been like um, an inspiration for that film and maybe... A bit. I don't think they. they I think they're dealing with a, a different subject matter. Uh, and as far as what I thought of the film, I really, really liked it a lot. Um, I w- immediately was <clears throat> struck by how it looked. It looked like, again. I don't know what the original <laughs> looked like, but the the version I saw on Amazon was phenomenal. It looked amazing. So hopefully you guys got that same experience. Um, and um i basically i loved what the story was about basically i mean you already kind of read the you know the simple version you know synopsis to just kind of pull you in it's just you know a a surgeon a father you know disfigures his daughter accidentally in a car accident and will do anything to try to get her her face back uh but i think more than that the film was about the this kind of like control the father had um, being like a, you know, a person in power, um, a notoriety, a, you know, a surgeon, um, and in basically exhibiting that power and, and enforcing it on people and stuff like that, specifically his daughter and how everything he's doing for her is not specifically because he feels like a sort of guilt or anything about it. It's again, because of, he can't have, um, you know, this person that is so closely tied to him looking the way she does. So it's really what drives what he's doing in the film uh, to try to get her face back, all the horrible things he's willing to do and how he basically doubles down on kind of this idea of, you know, enforcing this control on everyone in his life or that's close to him. So I loved all that exploration of that. I love the portrayal of his daughter and, Kind of the the look of the mask that she wears, uh, it's for the most part. When I first looked at it, it, it just seemed like it was expressionless. But the more I like looked at it throughout the course of the film, it was almost like there was like this kind of hint of like sadness more so than just like her eyes. But like the mask itself just looked like it was perpetually sad, uh, which I thought was a nice touch and a nice, um, like I said, like. Um, aesthetic to you know added a nice aesthetic to the film like the image of the mask that she wears uh in you know on top of that uh, you know how she expresses how she's feeling throughout the the film um i thought 
there's one scene particularly in the film that was really uh, effective. Uh, the sur- the first surgery scene, which they just kind of linger on, which I thought, you know, effects wise, it's you know of the '60s, it's not perfect, but just lingering on it, it really, um, I-, I thought worked overall for me, um, and-, and just really put uh, forward, you know, just how horrible uh, all the things he's he's doing is. So overall, I-, I was a huge fan, and I love where you know it ends up as well. It really kind of had. Um, um, a Hitchcock vibe to it for me. So, what'd you guys think? Hey, Wally. Uh, I had a more just the, the overall look of this movie reminded me more of <clears throat> the for some reason the cabinet of Dr. Caligari in the, the terms of like the set design that they were using, real sparse. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't ever get to see much in the way of sets. It's and it's a, a lot of this is carried by the story, which I really enjoyed. <clears throat> Uh, overall, I I loved this movie. I I had a I, I was into it. Um, the opening with uh, Alita Valley, who we talked about in Suspiria, yes, yeah. that's Mrs. Tanner. That's right. Um, I was like, hold up. So you know, the, you have this you have this this cold opening of a woman, you know, driving with a body in the back seat and dumps it in the river, and you're like, well, all right. So this is how this movie opens. No real explanation, and. And then when you get to the you know the police station and they're talking about you know the body that they found, and they they get to the story real quick like they get the 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 ball rolling for you so you can you know get up to speed, and you know this doctor you know apparently was in an accident disfigured his daughter, and now he's trying to make right by her by fixing her face. This movie I don't know if this movie I would classify this movie as a horror. Uh, this movie is more like a thriller because you know. Um, you know early on who the vic- who the villain is, and it's a matter of what his is. Is he going to get? Is he going to get caught? Is he going to be undone? Like, what's going to happen to this bad guy? Will he get away with it? Will he not get away with it? And I would say this movie is structured more like a thriller than it is a horror movie. Well, Wally, would you um, consider Silence of the Lambs a, th- a horror movie? No, I consider Silence of the Lambs a thriller. See, it's interesting because I think a lot of people do classify Silence of the Lambs as horror, so I can completely understand why this would be classified as a horror as well. I can see, I can see how they would classify it as, but I, you know who the bad, like you know who the bad guy is. You know, you. What does that a, mean? What does that have to do with anything? It's not just. It's because in a thriller, it's it's the process of how they're going to get caught, how they're going to get undone. And Silence of the Lambs, she's trying to catch. She the, the the point is to catch Buffalo Bill. And in this, as the movie goes along, it's whether or not this guy is going to be able to be successful in what he's going to do, what's going to happen with that. Um, and I, it's also been a while since I've seen a mad scientist movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I forgot how much I appreciate like the mad scientist as a as a type of villain because um, you see his like his really elaborate lab with the giant you know, uh, spotlight and all that. But this movie is, is very linear. There's not a lot of subplot going on. It's a very straightforward story. Um, really the only flaw that it's, it's the only, you know, that's really the only knock I can really give it is the fact that it is a fairly linear. So there's not a lot of room for depth and you have a, an actress who it, to her credit carries a lot of, um, of the movie with just her voice and the delivery of her lines and the expression that she's able to put on her eyes because the mask itself doesn't really emote all that much. And, um, and the side character. So I, 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 I 
really enjoyed watching this. This was this was a joy. And I'm also beginning to notice too the the, the more we watch these movies from the '60s, that this is a real sweet spot for me. Like I really love the aesthetic and the look that they were doing around this time cinematically. Um, so I'm going to try to incorporate more of these in my A and A segments going forward. <laughs> I you know I I didn't even mention the the. The girl, uh, Christiana, is um, played by Edith, Edith Scobe. And we actually saw her uh, several years ago in uh, Holy Motors. Uh, oh, I, wow. don't, I don't even remember you know, who she played, although I did see a still in which she did wear a mask in that movie. So that was obviously an homage probably to this movie. <clears throat> as far as my thoughts, no, I, I agree. This is a very well-done film. I, I don't think there's much... In the way of surprises, it's great to see something, though, that is clearly rather influential, you know, and, and also uses a technique that we see in lots of other films, you know, and, and that's first-person perspective. And you see it a lot in horror and thriller suspense movies. I mean, think multiple Alfred Hitchcock films. It's, I even mentioned uh, Silence of the Lambs. There's tons of scenes. Th- this movie reminded me a lot of Silence of the Lambs only because of a number of the first-person perspective. Like, there's there's um, the the girl that discovers... Or wait, no, I'm sorry. No, it's her. Yeah, it's, it's Christiana who discovers the, uh, the surgery room, you know, the surgery room, and... and you know, when she's hiding uh, behind the car and she goes in there and there's a lot of first-person perspective of her walking down that hallway. And I just I just find it very interesting uh, technique uh, that that these directors are using in these these genre of films to to really it really does help convey the sense of dread and suspense that you're supposed to feel at that moment because it really, it, it does exactly what it's doing. It, it's putting you in the perspective, in their perspective, you know. Uh, so, uh, you know, continuing to see that as we do these shows and these episodes and watching all these movies from the past and being able to see this this technique used over and over and over again in similarly themed films is really interesting, you know, when it comes to uh, a film study perspective. Um you know, you talk about the mad scientist. You're right. It kind of, it's obviously uh, a Frankenstein type of story. You know, where you have this this surgeon, this doctor who uh, goes mad with his own power. You know, his his uh, his pathos is 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 just um, you know through the roof, in which he needs to succeed at all costs. I wonder if the film is trying to lend a sympathetic ear or eye to to his character. Uh, it, you know, if it tries to do it in equal measure as with his daughter. And I don't know if I felt that with him. You know, I certainly felt it with the daughter. And it's interesting the direction that the daughter goes in. You know, we'll get that into that in spoilers, but... I, uh, you know, and when it comes to the mask, I really, like you said, Hermano, the, the mask is very effective in, in that it, it establishes it, your eye to uh, associate that look with her, you know, that, that blank look so that later on in the movie, when she doesn't wear that mask and she does have a new face, it, it's a credit to the filmmaking to... Uh, have or, already have that image of the mask burned into your mind, and then also a credit to Edith Scobe 
for her acting ability to have this utterly blank face on her look, uh, blank look on her face, to uh, make her skin is, and and uh, her features seem so much more creepier than what would normally be. I think uh, because you're you're looking at this almost emotionless face without the mask that really lends to this this real creepiness and almost like uncanny valley disconnect it's really strange what, what did you think hermano yeah no I, I i agree with everything you're saying except for maybe the the idea that um like maybe the film was trying to depict the father as kind of a, a maybe you're supposed to sympathize with him a bit i feel like I, I personally did not because his whole portrayal is like a very cold, um, unsympathetic person. Like he, he's almost sociopathic in a way where even when approached by, uh, in one scene, uh, a father of one of the girls that he abducted, um, he's completely unsympathetic. Like he shows absolute no remorse. He doesn't break down in any way. He just stays tried and true to, you know, what he's been doing and even kind of, um, makes the guy feel bad about even bothering him in that moment. You know what I mean? Well, like, I, I in, say I say that because I think the, the film does spend a great deal of time with him at certain amounts of, uh, throughout the movie. And, and I was trying to figure out as to why they were spending so much time with him as opposed to other characters. I think it's just a contrast the way he is versus the way his daughter is. Like, they're, they're very, very different as the way they're depicted in the film. Like, the, the daughter's very quiet you don't know if that's just because of the accident or she's always kind of uh been that way because of how her father is or or brought her up or whatever you kind of can read in between the lines i think in a lot of the scenes in the film where he he's not really willing to listen to her and, and hear her like if for what she wants like he's so set on his path to try to get her face back that like i said it, it's him exhibiting his control over her again like he He's not listening to her. He's not even taking a moment to to hear what she wants. Like you don't feel like he's doing it because he feels bad in any way. Like he he's not doing it because he's tortured by the idea that he caused this accident. It just feels like something that just fell into his lap. And because he's always been this type of person, he just took it upon himself to just do it, but not out of like some sense of duty. That just the fact that you know he's always been this person and he always just takes charge and gets people to do what he wants. What did you think, Wally? Uh, I, I'm with you, Tim. The, uh, the, the pathos that they try to drive <clears throat> uh, from, the doctor's character, from the doctor's standpoint is normally you would feel like, oh, this guy is trying to atone for some past, you know, some past indestructions, but that atonement has obviously uh, like broken down and, and grown into this crazy obsession of his and makes him unsympathetic make turns him into the villain he's you know it's no longer about him trying to you know save his daughter or save her face he it's now become like this one thing that he has to do no matter who gets who gets hurt in the process how many people he has to kill he's he's going to make this happen because he you know um and you see it uh when he first um you first see that first um transplant and everything looks okay and the first thing is i failed and then just him breaking down what's going to happen next over the next few days and you know back to square one 
And the the actor who who um, who plays the doctor does a really good job in his portrayal of someone who really doesn't have any emotion about it. You know, it's not that like, oh, I failed my daughter. It's like I failed my own skill. Like, it's not about you. It's a, this is really about about me. And one thing I I really uh, dug about this movie. I don't know if you guys heard about the if you guys know about the the Kuleshov effect. What's that? So back in like the early days of um, of film, like 1920s, 19, yeah, 1910, 1920, um, a filmmaker named Lev Kuleshov did an experiment where he had a neutral image <coughs> of a man's face, no expression whatsoever, and then edited it together with um, a funeral, uh, then the face again, then uh, someone holding a baby, then the face again, and some food. And showed it to audiences. And even though the guy's expression never changed, the lighting and all that other stuff was all the same, the people associated this neutral image with an emotion that it wasn't really attached to. Hmm. And this movie uses that to great effect because the face doesn't really emote, but it uses this effect to to convey the emotions of the daughter effectively. You know, when she's on the phone uh, talking to... Uh, her love interest or calling him up to hear it just to hear his voice, you know, which is first teased. And then you finally see who it actually is later on, um, which I thought was also really cool. Uh, the way this movie is constructed. I, what, what did you guys think about the, the cops and their plan to try to trap this surgeon? It's just really interesting contrast to see how sting operations would work then. And nowadays I was like, you're just going to let this woman go and do, go into this place. <laughs> <laughs> I know, like, you suspect this guy has been carving faces off of people and you're going to send this young girl in there to, <laughs> to suss it out. I'm like, I don't know. I don't think you would do that nowadays. I mean, put them not not without actually being relatively close, right. wearing a wire. Like, there'd be a lot of precautions yeah, I, taken to it, make sure she was in, in harm's way. Yeah, I know a wire would be out of the question in this day and age, but yeah. at least having someone else undercover with the the other doctor that's involved in all this, you know, like uh, he's an assistant or whatever, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Well, you don't have any cops on <laughs> in location. I was like, what's going on here? <laughs> so, yeah. And it's also, it's also darkly amusing that like, you know, the, the girl leaves and gets abducted and like their response is, well, I guess she must've gone home. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have anybody homey. What, what's yeah, exactly. What's going on? <laughs> what kind of police work are these Frenchmen doing here? Um, um, was anyone else distracted, or did you guys notice the score and what it sounded very familiar like a to? Comedy. It, I, the, the score is a comedy. Well, one comedy in particular. Oh, Curb um, Your Enthusiasm? Curb Your Enthusiasm, yeah. dude. <laughs> It was so distracting to hear that score and how similar it sounded to Curb Your Enthusiasm. I was, every time it came on, I was just like, did Larry David like love this movie or something? And he's like, I want to do something similar. That's funny. Yeah, it's also weird too, because like you like you hear this like happy piano sound and nothing happy or silly is going on, but it sounds like something you would expect to see Mr. Hulo show up and kind of walking across the screen. It's like the guy's like doing like the face surgery and, you know, Monsieur Hulo just shows up and kind of looks around and is like, hmm, and then just keeps walking. 
Yeah, whatever instrument they're using, it's too high-pitched uh, for the mood that they're trying to convey. I think if it was the same uh, uh, beats, the same um, musical you know, tone or arrangement, if it, yeah. it would have been better if it was like an oboe or something, you know? Yeah, it had a bit of a, like a silent film feel to it as well yes. where like the music didn't always match what was happening in the scene so maybe that was what he was going for because you would often see that in like you know like silent westerns or you know things mm. like that and you're just like wow this music is really jaunty for what's happening with people getting shot and stuff like that so yeah i think the yeah, i don't know i think the director had uh, got a start in silent film i'm sure a lot of silent films influenced him you know uh, uh, coming up so um, who knows? Maybe, maybe it was an homage or something like that. You know, uh, anything else to mention before we get? Well, I, well, actually, yeah, we've we've mentioned the uh, briefly mentioned the the surgery scene. That, that's it's horrifying. It's horrifying. The yeah. the removing of the face. I mean, I was stunned at how detailed and long it went on for. And I'm like. The, uh, Europe is not playing any games here, you know? <laughs> Especially in the 60s. It was yeah. surprising. Even I was like, wow, they're really not going to cut away. They're, I mean, <laughs> lack of a better word, <laughs> they are cutting away, but not in the sense that I was looking for, I guess. But uh, yeah, like it, 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 I was like, wow, like this is really effective and, and really, you know, it was probably the better choice to really show people the, I mean, probably the most effective scene in the film as to what's really going on, like what he's really doing with, with these girls and stuff like that. And yeah, it absolutely came across. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anything else to mention before we get into spoilers? Spoilers. Um, just, just tying into, uh, you know, my, the, my feel about the, the Dr. Caligari comparison. Mm-hmm. Apparently in the U.S. it was uh, retitled. Yeah. The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. Yeah. Even though there's no Dr. Faustus in this movie. Yeah. But it also, I mean... Chamber, cabinet. It, it, not, I'm not the only person apparently who saw this. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe some producer, you know, in the United States who didn't know how else to, you know, market it, you know, with whatever double bill it was going with. Yeah. Let's get into spoilers. Uh, Hermano, how did you think uh, this movie wrapped up? What'd you think? I loved it. I thought it was poetic justice. I think that was what he was going for. I think the daughter finally took matters into her own hands and, you know, like she took the power back essentially. Like he she realized um eventually all this was taking a toll on her obviously, like knowing what her father was doing to try to get uh her her face back, knowing that she's not really uh, their relationship seemed strained and for me like it it felt more more so than just the accident. Like, it felt like there was more there than just this one single occurrence. Like, it felt like this had been going on her whole life because it had really taken a toll on her. She obviously puts forward some events that lead to his demise. Um, you know, I, I thought the dog thing as well, like, really ties into the the Dr. Frankenstein thing where he's expert doing these, like, yeah. like side... It was kind of like the side plot of the film aside from the, the detective uh, element was that he was doing all these kind of like weird experimental surgeries on animals. Uh, and then maybe who knows where, it, you know, they would go from there. But yeah, I thought it was justice. Like he had been keeping all these dogs in a cage and in a way she was kept in a cage, you know, and ultimately, you know, like I said, she, she ends up, um, you know, one way or another 
you know, being involved in his demise. So yeah, I thought another, it was really well done. Another interesting part of this film is there's this dinner scene between him, his daughter, and his assistant. And now uh, he's he's also in the past worked uh, on his assistant's uh, face or you know um, neck area as well or whatever, and it, not nearly as extensively as his daughter. Uh, hence why the assistant still looks uh, human essentially. Um, but that the dinner, you know, it's it's an interesting contrast in where y- expectations are, especially for this time period, I guess, are you know family dinner type of thing where you would have a conversation about normal things, but everything le- just leads to him, you know, and his own work and or success and failures, you know, and and it's just um, one of those things that leads to the overall, you know, kind of overarching message and theme of this movie is, is you know, all um, his own uh, narcissism, you know, and, and not ultimately caring about his subject or even his own daughter. And it all comes back to him, you know. So I thought that dinner scene was really effective. What do you think, Wally? Uh, so we're, we're 2-0 and o with Alita Valley getting it in the neck in the end. <laughs> Uh, so you get us getting stabbed in the neck in Suspiria indirectly, and then uh, again in this movie. Um, I thought it was a clever, uh, a, 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 an interesting way to do it at at the end, um, where you have uh, the daughter. I can't remember her name. I should look up the character's name. Christiana. Oh, yeah, Christiana. Um, you know, rather than go after her father herself. You know what I mean? Like she, you know, stabs his assistant and then rather than like just lay and wait for him and all that, she just starts to kind of go into like fuck it mode and, you know, lets all the, the, you know, the dogs out and, you know, he hears the, uh, the dogs, you know, and then gets mauled by them. And then also, uh, that's what I'm looking for. Symbolically, she's letting all the doves out. (laughs) <laughs> like it's a John Woo film. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, you know, the doves are flying away. And then they leave it as a, they leave a kind of an interesting ambiguous ending. Does she walk out into the woods and, you know, die of exposure on her own like she's been wanting to this whole time? Or would she be found and brought into the city and the, the truth will be uncovered? They don't ever tell you that. They just kind of leave it, you know, as open to interpretation. But she wants to be free. And so you finally see her freeing herself at the end and you know all the other creatures that have been subject to this guy's you know experiments and tests they're all free now they he's he's gone and now she's out into the world whatever happens next is up to chance uh yeah that was a little uh, heavy-handed with me with the with the doves i'm like okay yeah okay, it was the least it. subtle aspect of the film is you know the dogs i think would have been enough like it, that was fine but then her remaining to free each dove individually it was like okay we get it <laughs> exactly and also regardless of whether she gets picked up i think the truth will be uncovered based on the final girl uh escaping as well that was tied to the operation table like she's gonna probably run out until the police anyway so um i don't know i i i think it's still open-ended i agree with wally but like i <laughs> i think ultimately that girl would probably choose like she's been saying, you know, she just wants to die. Interesting, you know, you know interesting. You mentioned that final girl making out. It, this this movie did remind me a little bit of the eyes of my mother, and yeah, yeah, and how the ending of that movie. You know, I, I think I talked about it where I I found it um, 
it, it forces you to make logistical leaps considering the the previous 80 minutes of the movie and and where this movie I, I ends on the right note and on the right tone I think that eyes of the the eyes of my mother would if it ended on the same tone and notes as this film it would have served it a lot better you know yeah the, the end of this movie like I said it's it, it's it's a great uh, note to end on you know it's a great uh, way to end it you know I, I I don't think there's any other way to end this movie you know you have the camera focused on the mauled face which again is another great gory scene you know while the 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 actual dog attack itself I think may last a little bit too long to to sus- make you suspend disbelief, you know? Uh, but the result of it afterwards is is effective. I'm like, uh, kudos once again to keeping the gore in this movie. It was such, you know, considering the era. Um, I like it. Uh, anything else to mention before we get into grades? Good? Uh, I, I, felt, I felt like the dog attack was probably fairly accurate. Like, I was trying to think later. I was like, how long would it actually take for, like, a group of dogs to actually kill a person? I I, so like, I just mean the stunt work of it, you know, where and and the maybe some of the camera placements where it, it's uh, the not many close ups. There's a lot of you know medium range shots of it. So I just yeah. think that that that's what I mean by the effectiveness of it. And sure, the length of of the attack I, I'm sure is fine and accurate and realistic or whatever. It, it's just the the way it was shot and edited. Uh, all right, let's get into grades, Wally. I give it a solid A. Hermano, same A. Wow. Uh, B plus for me. Damn it, Tim! Why are you so reluctant to give A's? What are you talking about? I, I what are you talking about? I don't know what you're talking about. Every time Wally and I give an A, you're like, nah, B plus. <laughs> <laughs> it's a borderline A minus for me. Mm. I gave it an A out of ten. And I'm. What does uh, Geostorm get? Uh, you'll find out. <laughs> Uh, okay, that does it for this episode of the First Time Watchers podcast. Find us on Facebook by searching First Time Watchers. Email us at firsttimewatchers at gmail.com. Send a donation via patreon.com slash firsttimewatchers or visit our store at zazzle.com slash firsttimewatchers. You can follow us on Twitter at the number one, ST Time Watchers on Twitter. Or follow us on our Tumblr page, firsttimewatchers.tumblr.com. Download our episodes on iTunes and Stitcher. Feel free to leave a review. We'd love feedback. If you have any suggestions of movies for us to watch, please send a tweet or an email. Uh, speaking of suggestions, let's recommend a movie, Wally. All right. So Marno mentioned this already uh, uh, prior, uh, directed by Pedro Almodovar. The Skin I Live In, a brilliant plastic surgeon haunted by past tragedies, creates a type of synthetic skin that withstands any type of damage. His guinea pig, a mysterious and volatile woman who holds the key to his obsession. Uh, I really dug this movie when I saw it uh, years ago. Um, this movie is is weird. It's um, when you see the the actual ending and like the whole idea of like why he's doing what he's doing. What the fuck? Even, yeah, exactly. Like, what the? Okay. And uh, you're gonna be uncomfortable with it because yeah. there's a lot of things that happen uh, over the course of this movie that um, when you know how it ends, it uh, makes those moments even more uncomfortable. So. Uh, but it's it's very well done. This movie is is a is an A in my book, and I would highly recommend you check it out if you are into movies like Eyes Without a Face. I was gonna say that Eyes Without a Face also reminded me of the skin I live in. I think it's that that movie is clearly influenced by uh, Eyes Without a Face. I oh, think absolutely. there's no doubt whatsoever. Which film? The skin I live in. I mentioned that. 
Yeah, I, yeah, I just said that. Holy shit, you weren't even paying attention. Anyways, I, I was looking up my uh, my recommendation. My recommendation <laughs> is once again the greatest film of all time, Geostorm. I gave it a ten out of ten. I, I gave it an A plus 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 A fuck plus. Uh, it, it, it's a five star movie. It's 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 the best movie of the all time. Best movie of all time. It's the movie best of, movie of the year. Here we go. Movie of all time. I'm telling you, it's the greatest movie ever. Geostorm, watch it. Uh, Hermano. All right, I'm going to recommend a film that I only watched once and I barely remember from 1993. <laughs> Malice. Tim, do you remember Malice? I Have do, you ever seen it? I do remember Malice. I've discussed this uh, in the past. It's, uh, I love this movie. Okay. Uh, directed by Harold Becker, written by Aaron Sorkin and Jonas McCord, starring Alec Baldwin, Nicole Kidman, Bill Pullman. Alec Baldwin plays a surgeon. People will remember the trailer. I remember the promotions in the trailers for this film where they really... And it totally makes sense now that this is an Aaron Sorkin line, but like basically, um, Alec Baldwin has to utter the lines. You ask me if I'm playing God, I am, I am God. God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, he plays a surgeon. He apparently does something, uh, takes it upon himself to do something, um, surgery wise on Nicole Kidman's character, I believe, that maybe leaves her without the ability to have children or something. I, I, it's kind of what I'm remembering. Um, so yeah, I barely remember this film. Malice. It's a good one. It's one I've considered for uh, second time watchers. What? That wow, that high on your list. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 uh kind of the start, you know, right around the start of my, you know, getting into more adult fare, you know, adult uh thrillers, you know. Uh oh George C. Scott is in this? Uh yeah. BB Newworth? It's and Bancroft. Holy a, shit. It's a great cast. It's a good thriller. I remember the end. It's, it's a good twist, you know. Gwyneth Paltrow is in this? <laughs> I'm telling you, I love 90s erotic thrillers. This is one of my favorites. <laughs> nice. Uh, all right. Stay tuned for our next episode. Even though it is not September Catch-Up Month, we will catch up on a movie that was uh, kind of divisive from earlier this year, A Ghost Story. First time watchers podcast because we like to watch. Water in my basement. What? What happened? Well, you own a house, you deal with stuff. Like uh, we had to replace the the furnace uh, last weekend. Oh, like I'm. I mean, you haven't had it on, right? So, like, how did you know? Well, it came on like the previous week for like one day, and and I go downstairs a few days later and I notice like this black substance in front of the furnace, like it had been blown out from the bottom. Uh, yep. and, and I, I feel it, I smell it. it. It doesn't feel oily. It does. It has no odor whatsoever. And I'm like, what the hell is this? It looked like burned water, you know? Yeah. 
So I contact the plumber who had dealt with that furnace earlier on in the year to replace the gas valve. And I explained the situation. I don't send him pictures. I explain it to him. And he's like, yeah, send me pictures. About one minute after I send the pictures, he says, that's not good. I'll be over within the hour. I'm like, whoa, <laughs> okay. Uh, so he comes over. He looks at it. He's like, I've never seen this before. Um, he, he asked me to turn up the heat to turn, turn it on, essentially, you know. Uh, yeah. And, it, like, the flames are going. He's, he's under there. He's, like, looking underneath it for a full five seven minutes and then you know i turn it off and it goes off and then he he he's listening he's looking and he's like yeah you have a cracked block and it's pretty much the like the heat shield at the back yeah uh and i'm like oh well how much is it to replace that he's like oh no 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 there's no replacing those things you have to you have to get a whole new unit i'm like oh awesome and he's like, the brand you have, it's called Burnham. And he said, the brand you have, is, it's awful. I replace them constantly over the years. I, I've never dealt with a worse brand in my 30-plus years of working uh, on these things. And, uh, and, you know, these furnaces, they should last 20, 25, 30 years. This, yeah. one, this one was, I would say, 10 years at the most old. Yeah. Um, so but yeah. you haven't been there that long, so you just knew from, like, um, the past owner or whatever? Uh, or how many times it's been serviced or whatever? Uh, no, I don't know how many times it's been serviced. Uh, so, I don't know. The so. furnace is expensive? I mean, you have to say how much, but oh, I have no concept. Oh, yes, concepts. they are expensive. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it costs, it costs more than what we spent to uh have our walkway replaced you know and stairs in the, in the front so it yeah. was it was uh it was a credit and because it was such an unexpected thing we we're lucky we had enough money on a credit card oh uh, man yeah yep so it Ugh. was it was not fun not fun 